Peter, thank you for joining us today on our program. To begin, share with us a few words about your background and your current work in the field of international law and litigation. Well, uh, one thing a lot of my friends don't even know about me is I was actually born in Greece, which was of interest to some of your viewers, and uh, came to this country when I was two and a half. Obviously, I consider myself pretty much American, but I'm very proud of my Greek heritage. Uh, grew up in Boston, uh, was an altar boy at the cathedral there, and uh, went to school uh, there uh, at Harvard, and uh, was very fortunate to uh, get a fellowship and worked overseas for a couple of years in Asia and Africa and came back and went to law school and have been a practicing lawyer ever since. And what first influenced you to pursue a career in law and in international affairs? You know, I'm, uh, maybe it's ever since growing up, uh, I grew up in different cultures. I grew up in a Greek-American family, uh, so there was always that part of who I was and, and my traditions. Uh, and part of it was just sort of a fascination with the world. I'm not sure where I got that, but uh, just when I was able to win a fellowship from Harvard and go overseas, I lived and worked in uh, a refugee camp. Well, I worked at a refugee camp on the Thai border during the Vietnamese military invasion uh, of the border, and then uh, I worked in Sudan with uh, famine victims for, the, for UNICEF. Uh, I guess that really cemented it, and while I've become a I think a pretty good U.S. attorney. I'm a litigator, and I have a lot of cases in primarily federal court, but really state courts too throughout the country. Um, much of my interest and passion remains international affairs, uh, both international disputes and increasingly uh, foreign investment, helping both U.S. Uh, funds uh, and companies with their overseas investments, and, and also some foreign governments with. Uh, trying to attract foreign investment and their challenges. So it's been fun. Recently, you've written about a topic that has been on our minds and on our listeners' minds, the Greek financial crisis and the European debt crisis. And recently, you wrote an article which was published in Forbes magazine about the crisis and some of the myths surrounding it. What are these myths that you speak of? Well, a lot of this has to do with what you know. some people have called the German narrative, which uh, too many in the U.S. press, I think, have been all too happy to adopt, which is that, you know, you have Greece and really the other southern periphery countries of uh, Portugal, Spain, Italy, and you'd have to add Ireland to that mix, too, even though it's not in the south, have been profligate, they've been corrupt, uh, they've been lazy, and uh, they're responsible for all their own problems. And clearly, many of those countries have faced profound problems and, and, and have to take responsibility for some of the shortcomings in terms of their government. And that would include corruption, inefficiency, uh, protected industries, um, very bad fiscal decisions, um, far too much borrowing, speculation. I don't, I don't deny any of that. I think that's true, and, and the Greeks have admitted that, the Greek people have admitted that, and I think many in Europe understand that. But, but there are also, as with most big complicated things in life, uh, the picture is far more uh, complicated. And I think one of the things we have to admit also is that how Europe is constructed uh, has caused many of these problems. The very, the very notion of the Eurozone and how it functions has been responsible. Part of it is the Germans are no more fiscally, well, they're more fiscally responsible than the Greeks have been, but their, their entire economic machine 
has been structured along a mercantilist model where they suppress their own wages, they have a high productive capacity, and they rely upon exporting their goods to the southern periphery markets. And the Greeks, the Italians, especially in the south of Italy, uh, the Spaniards, the Portuguese, and the Irish really have lacked the productive capacity to catch up. Well, how do you normally do that? Well, you have a lower cost of capital and you start to bring yourself up. But if you're connected to the euro, then your cost of capital is pretty high. The good news is you can borrow at low rates, and that's what they did. The bad news is the Greeks and others didn't use those borrowings to increase their own efficiencies and productive capacities. And so as a result, you saw high wages, uh, high cost of goods and services in Greece and some of these other countries that, that didn't make them what they should have been, which was naturally competitive with respect to where their economy was in Northern Europe. And so they basically borrowed in order to consume Northern European goods, and that, that didn't, <laughs> that's a model that was bound to break down, and that's what's happened. Let's look at the recent bailout agreement and the Greek debt exchange. Will these agreements be enough to save Greece? And are these agreements even in Greece's best interest, considering some of the terms that the country had to agree to? Yeah, I've been very critical of, of these agreements. Uh, I, I think there's pretty wide consensus in Europe that they, these are not going to solve the problem. In fact, some people who were following this closely might remember that there was a hiccup uh, a week or two ago because there was a secret report uh, that apparently indicated that even if Greece does everything that it is being asked to do, that the country still will not bring down the percent of its debt to GDP uh, to 120% uh, for the indefinite future to 2020 and beyond. And if that's the case, that's kind of the magic number that the bond markets will start to lend to a country at reasonable market rates. And if Greece does everything it's being asked to do, and the uh, so-called Troika, the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the IMF concluded that even if Greece does what it's supposed to do, you still won't get the uh, debt to GDP down to reasonable levels, then why is, being Greece, why is Greece being forced to go through Eight more years of austerity. Remember, Greece has already suffered from five years of recession. These austerity measures are, by definition, recessionary. I, there's no effort here where there's no mechanism by which you'll see uh, growth in terms of an infusion of capital. Remember, much of the def uh, quote-unquote bailout is going to go directly to the creditor banks and financial institutions. Greece isn't going to see a lot of it. So where, where does the... Uh, where does the economic growth come from? It's hard to see where it comes from at all. And this secret report basically documented this, and then the, the Dutch and I think the Finns, I can't remember, almost walked away from the deal saying, what are we doing here? If everything turns out and Greece still can't recover, then this is, this is all just a, a charade. So many people now believe that Greece is going to have to do yet a third bailout and maybe restructure its debt yet again, including its new bonds. That, that's somewhat speculative. But I don't see Greece turning the corner anytime soon. I see Greece continuing to suffer, the average Greek person suffering, and I, I don't see where you see not only in Greece, but in Portugal and Spain. Spain has over 20% unemployment, as does Greece now. Uh, Spain is going into, many Eurozone countries are going into a recession, or at least a severe economic slowdown. Where's the growth come from? Now, finally, some people in Germany even, and the opposition are saying, 
we need some kind of uh, economic growth mechanism. And right now, Chancellor uh, Merkel is not offering that. And I think there's going to be increasingly backlash against uh, Chancellor Merkel's program of austerity because it's not worked and it doesn't appear to be working. And if anything, things appear to be getting worse, not only for Greece, but for the rest of Europe. So that's a long-winded answer of saying I don't think we're out of the woods at all. And further on the topic of the Greek debt haircut, will Greek bondholders sue Greece for the write-down and will they succeed? And would this change of Greece were to at some point declare its departure from the Eurozone or a stoppage of payments? Well, let me take the departure from the Eurozone uh, issue. I know uh, I've seen polls which suggest that the majority of Greek people don't want to leave the Eurozone. Um, and I know much of there's been a lot of talk about a financial contagion. I, I don't see how Greece is able to remain in the Eurozone. Um, I know that's not a popular opinion for many in Europe, but I just don't see how that will work. And, and even a few days ago, I think, uh, a, the conservative, um, one of the conservative uh, leaders of Merkel's um, coalition government basically suggested that Greece will probably have to leave the Eurozone. There are only two ways if you're a country you can you can presumably boost your economy. One is by lowering your cost of capital uh, so that people have enough capital. There's a credit squeeze going on in Europe now, and the, as you know, the European Central Bank has lowered the uh, lending rates to financial institutions to 1%. Presumably, it could go down to half a percent or even more, but right now, money is pretty cheap. But the problem is the banks, especially the Greek banks, are uh, themselves undercapitalized and so their ability and willingness to lend to other governments in the form of debts and also private parties is being squeezed. And while the ECB has done a good job recently of getting money, a lot of money, into the system, um, we'll see if that's going to be enough to prop up the European economy generally. So one is by lowering the cost of capital. The other is by lowering your cost of goods and services within your country. Well, again, as long as you're tied to the Eurozone, your currency is the same as Germany's and is the same as, as, as countries whose economies are humming along, maybe not as much as they historically have, but are still pretty strong. The only way Greece is going to be able to lower the cost of goods and services is by leaving the Eurozone and by really having and, and really seeing a, maybe a 30 to 40 percent or more reduction in their cost of goods and services. And, and to be competitive. That's the only way I think this can happen. I know that's not a popular opinion in Greece, but I just think the market is going to demand that. And I think you'll see Portugal eventually leave as well, and there's a potential for Spain to leave as well. And, and I don't see that as a, uh, having the Eurozone collapse. I think that is basically reflecting the reality of that these countries are in a fundamentally different condition than, say, Germany or even France or, or some of the northern countries. So now, can these bondholders sue? Yes, they can. Will they succeed? I'm not so sure they will. And I think where, whatever they do, they can sue in a variety of places, or they can try to sue in terms of international tribunals. They can try to sue in the Greek courts. And then if they're not happy there, they can appeal to what's called Protocol 1 of a, the European Convention on Human Rights to the uh, European court. And they can try to sue in sometimes third countries, even potentially the United States. But I think the challenge that they will face no matter where they go is that this Greek uh, debt exchange, which the government just proposed last Friday, was done pursuant to 
extensive negotiations with the IMF, the European Central Bank, and the European Com Commission, representing uh, you know member states, many member states, uh, international regulators, and also with the participation of over 450 financial institutions in the negotiations. And so, you know, this is not a simple case of like what Ar Argentina did, not that that was so simple, but of just defaulting unilaterally and then, you know, bondholders sued. This is part of an overall systemic plan to try to rescue not only Greece, but the Eurozone. And I, uh, any fair tribunal or court would have to say that this was, you know, that this was probably acceptable in an, a European debt crisis and especially a Greek financial crisis of this magnitude. So I think the odds of bondholders eventually succeeding is probably not very high, and it will certainly take years. When I say years, it could actually be more than a decade or so. Ultimately, what do you foresee as the repercussions of this crisis, and what does this crisis mean for the future of Europe and for European integration? You know, that's an excellent question, and, you know, I don't want to be too short-sighted, but I think thus far uh, the EU has not acquitted itself very well. And I think there is real danger here for the uh, European Union. Uh, if, if Sarkozy loses and Holland wins, I think you're going to see real divisions and the German-French leadership partnership uh, is not going to be nearly as smooth. And I think uh, Chancellor Merkel's agenda, which is more austerity coupled with more fiscal discipline, which, by the way, Germany has violated historically itself. So, you know, nobody has really met those fiscal constraints. I don't think there's going to be as much support for Merkel's vision. And I think Merkel has done very well recently uh, by, quite frankly, demagoguing uh, with her own constituents about what the Greek bailout has meant and why it's taken place, and by blaming the Greeks for a lot of things that the Greeks, in my opinion, shouldn't be blamed for. Um, but, you know, she's facing re-election in 2013. And I think she's going to have, the more this extends, this problem extends, the pro more her leadership is going to be questioned. And if you think about it, Germany's leadership, and Germany really has been driving this for the last year or two, I think has not been, at least Chancellor Merkel's leadership has not been what it should have been. Uh, it's been driven as much by her own uh, political fortunes and re-election ambitions and less about what it means as part of a larger European enterprise. And if you're going to ask Greeks to really sacrifice for an additional five years or eight years, if you're going to ask uh, Portuguese or Spanish or Italians to, to sacrifice for this larger notion of Europe, and then, frankly, if you're going to ask financial institutions to take a huge write-down in debt and other countries to bail out southern countries, there's got to be this larger overall sense of Europe and in it together and mutual shared sacrifice. And I've, I've not seen the German leadership done this. There's been this, you know, at best petty and, it, and possibly worse Rank, wrangling and, and name-calling between Greek politicians and German politicians that at best has been unseemly. And there's just not been a sense of shared sacrifice and unity during this very difficult time. And a sense, frankly, that they all have some responsibility and that they all have to join together as a way forward. And I just don't see the European project, I mean, is it going to collapse? No. But I, I, there's just been a lack of leadership and it's been very cumbersome and 
a lot of demagoguery, a lot of politicians not being completely forthcoming with their own constituents about what's been happening and what needs to happen. And when you think about it in those terms, I just don't see Europe uh, being able to move forward with the kind of unity and and uh, decisiveness that this crisis presents. So I, I, I think you're going to see the Eurozone con contract. I think you're going to see a number of countries leave. I don't think that's going to cause a quote contagion. Um, I think it's going to be inevitable given the economic realities of the Eurozone now. And we'll see what, what happens in the future, but I think... Uh, I just don't think the governance structure of Europe permits the kind of strong leadership that they need right now. So I think they're, they've got a lot of serious problems going ahead. And I don't say that triumphantly as an American. I think we want a strong Europe, and we want a Europe, or European economy. Remember, 20% of U.S. exports go to Europe. So we want them to be strong. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, it's going to be really challenging, and I don't see leadership emerging anytime soon. And you mentioned your view that the best way forward for Greece would be to leave the Eurozone. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Um, and let me allow me to ask you, what do you think would be some of the policies that Greece could implement or that the European Union could implement that would be, in your view, in Greece's best interest? Well, for Greece, I think some of what, you know, part of the model is it's a very sort of almost it's very Germanic, top-down. We're going to have a European... They've suggested having a European commissioner monitor uh, Greece's reforms, make sure that they comply. There's a long list of specifics that Greece has to uh, implement. You know, that's one approach, and it's very sort of... I don't use the word socialist, but it's very sort of uh, not market-oriented approach. I think a far better approach would be, be to have Greece leave the Eurozone. You'll see quite clearly a, a massive cut in the value of the Greek currency, which will also be painful. I, I don't want to minimize that. Uh, but it could be structured in a, in a phased way, it seems to me, that would, would avoid some of the shocks to the system, but still allow Greece to have a currency that floats and that whose value reflects accurately Greece's actual productivity and strength of its economy. And that would mean floating down, obviously. But you, you would also see the cost of imports rise for Greece substantially, which will be tough in the short term, but will also prompt a lot more efficiencies in the Greek economy uh, without having some Euro commissar um, overlooking every decision by the government uh, to get things done. Um, you would also have uh, Greeks being responsible for their own economy far more than they are currently, uh, and you would have the Greek governments whoever get, gets elected uh, in the upcoming elections in April, be more responsible for the results of, of, of implementing reforms. You'll also, by the way, if you don't continue to rely upon bailouts, uh, and if the bond market leaves you for a little bit uh, as you work through some of your problems, your tax collection system is going to have to be reformed and it's going to have to work. The Greek tax collection system, as everybody has documented, is a mess and you're going to have to see far greater improvements, or the country simply won't be able to function. And so I would rather have sort of more market-based reforms where Greece is standing on its own and, and has to survive on its own far more than being part of a Eurozone structure that, with uh, a long checklist, bureaucratically uh, imposed checklist of reforms that may or may not work in the long term. They're going to have to take the, on these reforms, but I'd rather have to see them do that as part of a 
their democratic process rather than as part of a, a Euro commissar overlooking what they do and what legislation they pass and whether it comports with some kind of uh, bailout package formula. I, I think that's a little bit more consistent with the notions of democracy. Let's switch gears at this point and talk a little bit about some of the other highlights of your career. Uh, you have in the past worked on both the John Kerry and the Barack Obama presidential campaigns. What were those experiences like for you, and how did you contribute to those campaigns? I, I was able to get much more uh, involved in the Kerry campaign. Uh, I, I tried to help uh, the Obama campaign as much as I could, but I was building my business then. Uh, the Kerry campaign, I, I became very much involved first uh, uh, doing uh, both law and foreign policy as a volunteer, um, a volunteer that probably worked uh, 40 hours a week volunteering in addition to being a full-time lawyer. So it was a busy time. And then I was the executive director of the uh, platform for 2004, which is the party's uh, statement of principles and policies. And uh, then I helped not only continue with foreign affairs uh, policy, but also fundraising uh, and gave a lot of speeches uh, uh, in different parts of the country uh, on behalf of the campaign, mainly in a fundraising mode. For the Obama campaign, I did a little bit of policy and, and did a little bit of television as a supporter uh, and was actually, just like I did with the Kerry campaign, I was also out uh, uh, helping to organize uh, in different parts of the country, uh, get out the vote, uh, voter protection, uh, when it came down to the general. So I, I was actually out in the field as well, which I also love doing, because you get to meet uh, an enormous number of uh, interesting people all over the country. So I, I, I like to think I was involved in a lot of different aspects and did as much as I could, could to help. In looking back at your career and uh, your successes thus far, how has your Greek-American background and your heritage helped guide you in your work? You know, I think just in terms of my personal life, you know, I was an altar boy when I was a uh, kid, and I always used to go to church every Sunday. And I'll confess I don't go as much as I should now that I'm an adult, but I think my... Um, my religious heritage has has been more important to me than than uh, I've come to realize than maybe I would have guessed, and uh, my sense of both not only faith but my sense of um, you know the social gospels, uh, the importance of trying to to help, uh, the importance of trying to um, bring justice and improve people's lives, uh, decency and dignity. Um, all of those principles I think are very important to me. And I think much of my interest in policy and maybe politics derives, I think, from a sense that, that we have some obligation to our fellow human being. And um, I think a lot of that, more than I realized as a, as a child growing up, uh, has really stuck with me uh, and drives some of my interest, not only overseas but here in the United States, uh, that, that we can and should try to um, help our fellow human being and improve things we've got an obligation to do so. So that's, that's probably, probably uh, the strongest influence of my, my heritage. That and obviously, you know, the emphasis on family and community. And, uh, and you know, that's, that stays with, I think, all Greeks, no matter whether you're living in Greece or the United States or elsewhere. To close out our interview, where can our listeners find out more about you and about your work? 
Well, uh, they can always do a search, but they can also check my website because uh, I have most most a lot of things posted there about our firm and our practice, and also some of my writings and speeches and things like that. And my last name is spelled. It's, it was originally Soharis, but uh, it's spelled C H O H A R I S. And uh, the name of my firm is Coharis Global Solutions because it's both a, a law and uh, international consulting practice. We do a lot of litigation, but we do a lot of other things. But uh, you can also Google me, but it's uh, uh, C H O H A R I S, and they should be able to find out about uh, both some of my professional and policy. Uh, policy ideas and activities. Well, Peter, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join us today on our broadcast. Well, it's Karstopoli, and I really appreciate it. Thank you.